0: Welcome to today's reading of the Daily Nonpareil. I'm going to start with some breaking news. The headline is, Man Dies at Omaha Hospital Following Shooting in Council Bluffs. A man died Sunday night at an Omaha hospital following a shooting in Council Bluffs. Police officers called to a residence near Harrison Street and Canesville Boulevard, Barred. about 6.40 p.m., located Gary Frederick, 62, suffering from a gunshot wound. A statement from the Council Bluffs Police Department said Frederick was taken to the Nebraska Medical Center where he died. Witnesses reported seeing Frederick arrive at the scene shortly before a disturbance began. Witnesses alleged that Mensa Olaway, 29, produced a gun and fired several shots at Frederick, striking him an unknown amount of times. Allaway, an Omaha resident, allegedly fled the scene. Police are asking anyone with information about his whereabouts to call 712-328-4765 or Crime Stoppers at 712-328-7867. Okay, there are not a lot of local news in today's paper, so I'm going to read a few articles from um, yesterday's Edition. Um, That would be Sundays, December 17th. By the way, I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. So here is a story from yesterday's paper Wall Lake trucker David Schultz disappears without a trace, leaving wife searching for answers. So out of Wall Lake, Iowa. On a Thursday morning in Sarah Schultz's eat in kitchen, two pairs of muddy children's hiking boots lay scattered on the wood floor underneath a green chalkboard. Printed in big, dusty letters on the chalkboard was the message, Bring Dave Home. Sarah's brown eyes widened as she looked beyond a lit, white, artificial Christmas tree through glass patio doors. As she stood, she leaned forward, and a serious expression washed across her face. For a moment, she thought she saw her missing husband outside. But the man wearing a cowboy hat in the neighbor's driveway wasn't David Schultz. Last month, the 53-year-old truck driver and father of 10-year-old twin boys disappeared under mysterious circumstances. His red Peterbilt semi with white stripes was found the afternoon of November 21st, parked in the middle of the northbound lane of County Road N-14, not far from where it intersects with D-15 in northeastern Sac County. The trailer he rents was loaded with pigs, but David was nowhere to be found on that stretch of paved roadway, which is flanked by cornfields. A number of farms are visible from all directions, along with wind turbines several miles off to the east. I want my husband. It's exhausting. It's awful, Sarah said, sobbing as she clutched a plaid flannel shirt jacket that belongs to her husband. A similar jacket was found in a ditch on the side of the road opposite David's truck. She gave him that jacket last Christmas. Since David went missing, the United Cajun Navy, a Louisiana-based nonprofit. And volunteers have scoured more than a hundred thousand acres in and around Sack County. On a recent Saturday, David and Sarah's twins, Joseph and Isaac, went even donned blaze orange vests and headed into the golden brown fields to search for their dad. They wrestled around, rode all terrain vehicles, and muddied their boots. Sarah said her sons are attending trauma counseling sessions. She, she said she hasn't really seen the boys cry, but when her eyes well up. She said Isaac brings her a box of tissues and dries her tears. Joseph is real quiet. I don't know what they know. I don't even know. Is he alive or is he dead? I just don't know, she said. Sac County Sheriff Ken McClure told the Journal, he is confident his office and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation will eventually solve the case. He said investigators haven't ruled out anything. We're going to run this out until we just can't run it anymore, until we can either find out what happened to David or where he's at and bring him home and give some answers, said McClure, who acknowledged there's a chance David suffered a medical episode and his body just hasn't been found yet. However, he emphasized that the area where David Semi was located was searched a minimum of three times, twice by law enforcement and at least once by the United Cajun Navy. Sarah has repeatedly called her husband's disappearance suspicious and said this is not something David would do. He would never leave. His family is his life. She has expressed frustration with local law enforcement and said she feels the case is more than small-town police can handle. This is not normal. This is like an abduction, like someone took him, she said. They need help. I want the FBI. It's been long enough. McClure, who has been in law enforcement for more than 36 years and served as sheriff for 20, said his office receives several tips a day about David's case. He said every tip is vetted. I don't mean this to sound critical, but we're getting a whole bunch of keyboard detectives and Perry Masons out here who are like, well, did you check this? This isn't day one, if you know what I mean, he said. What we're trying to do is prioritize them. Things that we know we can already dispute go into one pile. Things that are just absolutely ludicrous and absurd go into another, and then the ones we think are valuable are investigated. McClure said the FBI isn't involved in the case, but he said that doesn't mean that down the road it won't be asked to assist. He said there is no indication a federal crime was committed and no proof that state lines were crossed. The Division of Criminal Investigation and their resources are just as capable of getting the information we need, and really, we're looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack. All we know is this semi was here and the last time we have him on video. Unless you have a crystal ball and you've searched over 100,000 square acres, where do you go, he said. Desperate for answers, Sarah reached out to two psychics at the suggestion of friends. The first psychic, whom she spoke with over the phone, said her husband is being kept in a corner of a room and at that time was alive but weak. The second psychic sat at Sarah's kitchen table and, while holding one of her husband's orange hunting hats, revealed he was hit in the back of the head before being placed in a moving body of water. She said he was sorry that he would never leave me on purpose, Sarah said. David Schultz's missing persons case has attracted the attention of locals and online sleuths worldwide. The theories they've posted on true crime forums and social media pages have run the gamut from a medical episode to a cartel-related kidnapping. While some think David was murdered, others surmise he simply walked away from his life. Colin Geerstorf, who lives in Denison and has been a truck driver since 1994, said there's a lot of people talking about it. There's just a lot of things that just don't quite line up right with the whole deal, Geerstorf said, standing outside Casey's on the outskirts of early Iowa, He held a slice of pizza in one hand and a disposable coffee cup in the other, not far from where the regional grain truck he drives was parked. Geerstorf, who knows the man David rents his trailer from, said he thinks local truckers' wives are more rattled about the case than the drivers are. He said there's weird stuff that goes on on the road. Everybody's queued up now, so if something weird happens, they're probably not going to be friendly about it. The baffling circumstances surrounding David's disappearance have only continued to fuel wild speculation. Initially, the Sack County Sheriff's Office revealed little about its investigation into his whereabouts. In a Facebook post dated November twenty-second, the day after David's truck was found, the Sheriff's Office asked property owners in the northeastern portion of Sack County to check their land and outbuildings for anything out of the ordinary. Then, nearly a week after he went missing, the Woodbury County Sheriff's Office issued a statement dispelling any connection between his disappearance and information circulating on social media about a November 27th traffic stop near Highway 20 and the bypass. A 31-year-old North Sioux City man, who was reportedly driving recklessly near Moville, was subsequently arrested for possession of cocaine and felon in possession of a firearm. There is no evidence or indication that his traffic stop has any connection to the missing driver referred to in the post. The suspect's nationality has nothing to do with the case, and all suspects are presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, the statement said. On December 9th, McClure released a detailed account of David's last hours before he disappeared. He noted that David was not the David Schultz who had a one-way flight booked from Minneapolis to Phoenix late in the afternoon on November 21st. He also said David had not legally gone through a U.S. border crossing. According to McClure, a Sac County Secondary Roads employee called in David's truck at 3.04 p.m. on November 21st after it was discovered parked on the traveled portion of the road at the intersection of D15, 190th Street, and N14 Union Avenue. David's semi had reportedly been sitting there since the early morning. The truck was shut off, the lights were off, and the key was in the ignition. Deputies found David's wallet and cell phone inside. McClure said a towel, cell phone charger, and pocket knife were found with the coat on the opposite side of the road. McClure said investigators have done search warrants and taken taken items out for forensic examination, but haven't dusted the truck for fingerprints. That works really good on TV. In 36 years, I've made one case on fingerprints, he said. The problem is, every time you touch something, depending on the type of surface, whether it's a porous surface, a smooth surface, or whatever, they smudge. And then if you have multiple touches on it, then they just smudge even more, and you get print on top of print. Sarah last saw her husband about 7.30 p.m. on November 20th. She said he had been working all day and asked her to grab him a change of clothes. He had to do another seaboard load from Eagle Grove to Sac City, she said. He just washed up and changed and gave me a kiss and ran out the door. He's always in a hurry. She said her husband was eager to get his work done and come back home since her daughter and grandson were visiting from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. However, at 10 a.m. the next day, Sarah found the man David rents his trailer from on her doorstep. He said, have you spoken to Dave? She recalled. I said, no. He said, no one can get a hold of him and the pigs haven't been dropped off yet. Sarah repeatedly called David's cell phone every few minutes, but there was no answer. At 4.30 p.m., she said law enforcement officers called her from David's phone, and she headed out to the site where his truck was found. Following the discovery, county investigators searched the area on foot and with a canine, which tracked David's scent to a field drive. McClure said the track wasn't very long. The sheriff's office requested assistance from the Iowa State Patrol Air Wing Unit. A state patrol pilot flew the surrounding area but did not detect a heat signature consistent with a person. For the next two days, law enforcement, area firefighters, and volunteers expanded the ground search on foot and used drones. Nothing of significant value was located, according to McClure. To further the search, McClure said Sac County Sheriff's detectives and Lakeview police traveled to the Eagle Grove area in Wright County and, with help from the Wright County Sheriff's Office, found the hog confinement David was supposed to load up from. Load crew members were interviewed and load records were obtained. Investigators learned David had picked up his load, but he had been late to arrive. His truck was the last truck loaded. He left at about 10.50 p.m. When asked whether David stopped anywhere before arriving in Eagle Grove and why he was late, McClure responded, no, I can't definitively say either way. Sarah said her husband parks the truck and trailer at his friend's mechanic shop in Wall Lake. So after leaving home, she said he stopped there and probably spent some time talking to his friend, who was fixing up a yellow semi David had just bought. She said her husband planned to sell his red truck, which he got after a tornado slammed his blue truck on its side. He was so close to getting this truck up and running. It just needed a headlight, Sarah said, of the yellow truck. He had goals. He was excited to drive this truck. He would never have left. Sarah said her husband throws his wallet on the dash rather than keeping it in his pocket, which would be bad for his back. She said law enforcement officers showed her the wallet, which contained David's driver's license. She said it held at least $2,000. From what she can tell, nothing was missing from it. He starts off the week with about $2,000. You want to have it for emergencies. He doesn't use credit cards. McClure said the last time David was seen was on an Iowa Department of Transportation camera on Highway 20 at 11.15 p.m. on November 20th. He was heading west at Marker 126, a truck stop and convenience store just east of Fort Dodge. Investigators also obtained surveillance video from an area business near Weichmann Pig Company buying station. The video shows David never made it to Weichmann's, according to McClure. I think it's very unlikely, based on the video evidence that we have of him in Fort Dodge, that somebody else was in the truck, said McClure, who declined to go into further detail about the video other than to say, you can clearly see that it's him on video. Sarah said she saw a still photo of her husband taken from the footage, but she told law enforcement she didn't want to watch the video. I said I can't, because I can't do it again. It's like looking at a ghost. What happened, she said. I thought he wasn't driving, and he was at that time, I guess. At some point in David's journey, McClure said cell phone data shows him arriving at the intersection of highways 20 and 71 at about 12.18 a.m. on November 21st. The data shows the phone traveling north to where the truck was found and suggests the truck may have been there since 12.40 a.m. Sarah said an acquaintance nearly hit her husband's truck on N14 on his way to work at 5.30 a.m., she said the truck was still sitting there when the acquaintance returned from hog- feeding hogs at 7.30 a.m. He knows Dave's a good trucker. He thought Dave had it handled and didn't think much of it. While searching for David on December 2nd, one of the United Cajun teams, Navy's teams found the remains of a missing Rockwell City man, 54-year-old Mark Edward Reesberg, on a wooded, abandoned property southwest of Jolie. Early on, social media users tried to tie the disappearances of the two men together. Reesburg's body was found in a Chrysler PT Cruiser at 1710 230th Street. Preliminary findings suggest Reesburg, who was reported missing on October 28, suffered a single gunshot wound, according to a statement from Calhoun County Sheriff Pat Riley. Riley said Reesberg's body was sent to the Iowa Office of the State Medical Examiner for autopsy and that foul play is not suspected. I was so thankful because that case was treated like a lost dog. I cried because at least they have him, Sarah said, of Reesberg's family. Sarah has known David, who used to date her best friend's sister, since she was 12 or 13. Years later, Sarah, then a single mother of two, attended a birthday party. David was there. They had a great time sitting around laughing and drinking with their friends. After David had had a little too much alcohol, one of their friends asked Sarah to take him home with her. He ended up staying the night and never left, said Sarah, who didn't think she would marry again. He told me, you're the first girl I ever dated that wasn't crazy. You're normal. David and Sarah still reside in that taupe two-story house in Wall Lake, where a framed photo of them as Bonnie and Clyde sits propped up against a Christmas cactus on the kitchen table. Sarah is decked out in a black flapper dress and David in a pinstripe suit and fedora hat. Sarah introduced David to her daughter Sabrina, now 22, and her son Connor, now 18, and they got along great. Less than a year later, the couple married in November 2012 during hunting season. Sarah said David always wanted a family. Since Sarah's tubes were tied, they turned to in vitro fertilization to conceive. Joseph and Isaac were born eight weeks premature by emergency C-section the following October. David likes to tell them that story and tell everyone the gory things like blood was everywhere. He exaggerates, but he's proud of that story, and he always tells the kids, you don't know what your mom went through to have you. You respect your mother, Sarah said. David leaned on Sarah, often calling her at Evapco in Lakeview, where she works as a safety coordinator, to ask simple questions such as, where's the ketchup? When he was out hauling hogs and needed to take a quick nap in between loads in the sleeper compartment of his truck, David would tell her to call him in an hour and keep calling until he woke up. Sarah said her husband is hardworking to a fault. He would work without a day off for weeks on end. She said he loves his job, which he had been doing for years and years. His father was also a truck driver. I say one fault is he works too much. He just loves it, Sarah said. He knows he's good at it. One of the common things I hear more than one person say that he's loaded for is when they see Dave's truck coming down the road, they know they're going to have a good day. Sarah said her husband, who has high blood pressure, would often complain he was tired and remark, I can't take this. But when she would respond, maybe you need to find another job, he would dismiss her suggestion. It's hard work doing livestock like that. He's 53, but he's spry. He can run, he can jump, he's young at heart, you know, she said of David, who takes pride in being able to transport five loaves of hogs a day. He can outwork a young man, and he's proud of his work ethic. Sarah described David as being generous and simultaneously a tightwad. When the boys, who are in fourth grade, pour a glass of milk, she said David reminds them to drink all of it, because that's 32 cents worth of milk that he worked hard for. But like if somebody needs money to go to a hospital for their grandkids or something, he'll give them 200 bucks, she said. Even though David works more than any man Sarah knows, he's," she said he's a very dedicated family man and a good father. In fact, this past summer was the first time the twins accompanied David in his truck while he hauled hogs around northwest Iowa. Sarah said he taught the boys how to load and unload the livestock. David also often reminds Isaac and Joseph to open doors for women and say please and thank you. He wants to make sure they go to Sunday school. They go to church and they're respectful, she said. Sarah recently went through David's clothing after a woman from Sumner offered to make teddy bears for the twins. She thought the bears would be a way for the boys to hug their dad. I sent a couple of his hats because they have the Peterbilt emblem. I want them to put it where the heart is, she said. Here's another local story, why you won't likely see a white Christmas this year, historic temperature and precipitation in Iowa. As Christmas nears, daydreams grow of presents under decked out trees, a mug full of hot cocoa and idyllic white Christmas with snow lined streets. But snowy dreams are being dashed across the U.S. by this year's temperature forecast. The New Temperature Outlook predicts above-average temperatures for almost the entire U.S., including Hawaii and a large portion of Alaska, from December 20th to 26th, according to the Climate Prediction Center. At least one inch of snow needs to be on the ground where you live on December 25th in order to say it was a white Christmas. Above-average temperatures would threaten to stifle the freezing, freezing conditions necessary for existing snow to stick to the ground and increase the chances of any precipitation to fall as rain instead of snow. For most of the U.S., the above average temperatures are tied to warm, moist Pacific air forecast to be pumped east across the U.S. via the jet stream, a river of air high in the atmosphere that transports storms. So that's pretty much all I can find in the Daily non for local news, so I'm going to read the headlines. Israel-Hamas war calls grow for truce. Almost 2 million Palestinians have fled their homes, thousands killed. This is from the Associated Press out of the Gaza Strip. Israel's government faced calls for a ceasefire from some of its closest European allies on Sunday after a series of shootings, including the mistaken killing of three Israeli hostages, fueled global concerns about the conduct of the 10-week-old war in Gaza. Israeli protesters are urging their government to renew negotiations with Gaza's Hamas rulers. Whom Israel has vowed to destroy. Israel is also expected to face pressure to scale back major combat operations when US Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visits Monday. Washington is expressing growing unease with civilian casualties even as it provides vital military and diplomatic support. The war has flattened large parts of northern Gaza killed thousands of civilians, and driven most of the population to the southern part of the besieged territory, where many are in crowded shelters and tent camps. Some 1.9 million Palestinians, about 90% of Gaza's population, have fled their homes. They survive off a trickle of humanitarian aid. Dozens of desperate Palestinians surrounded aid trucks after they drove in through the Rafah crossing with Egypt, forcing some to stop before climbing aboard pulling down boxes and carrying them off. Other trucks appeared to be guarded by masked people carrying sticks. Israel said aid passed directly from Israel into Gaza for the first time Sunday, with 79 trucks entering from Kerem Shalom, where around 500 trucks entered daily before the war. Another 120 trucks entered via Rafa, along with six trucks carrying fuel or cooking gas, said Wal Abu Omar. Palestinian Crossings Authority spokesman. Aid workers say it's far from enough. You cannot deliver aid under a sky full of airstrikes, a spokesperson with the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, Juliet Toma, said on social media, while the agency estimated that more than 60 percent of Gaza's infrastructure has been destroyed in the war. Telecom services in Gaza gradually resumed after a four-day communications blackout the longest of several outages during the war that groups say complicate rescue and delivery efforts. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said Israel will continue to fight until the end, with the goal of eliminating Hamas, which triggered the war with its October 7th attack into southern Israel. Palestinian militants killed some 1,200 people that day, mostly civilians, and captured scores of hostages. Netanyahu vows to break to bring back the estimated 129 hostages still in captivity. Anger over the mistaken killing of hostages is likely to increase pressure on him to renew Qatar-mediated negotiations with Hamas over swapping more of the remaining captives for Palestinians imprisoned in Israel. In Israel on Sunday, French Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna called for an immediate truce aimed at releasing more hostages getting larger amounts of aid into Gaza and moving toward the beginning of a political solution. France's foreign minister ministry earlier said an employee was killed in an Israeli strike on a home in Rafah on Wednesday. It condemned the strike, which it said killed several civilians, and demanded clarification from Israeli authorities. The foreign ministers of the UK and Germany meanwhile called for a sustainable ceasefire saying too many civilians had been killed. Israel will not win this war if its operations destroy the prospect of peaceful coexistence with Palestinians, British Foreign Secretary David Cameron and German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock wrote in the UK's Sunday Times. The US defense secretary is set to travel to Israel to continue discussions on a timetable for ending the war's most intense phase. Israeli and U.S. officials have spoken of a transition to more targeted strikes aimed at killing Hamas leaders and rescuing hostages without saying when it would occur. Hamas has said no more hostages will be released until the war ends and that in exchange it will demand the release of large numbers of Palestinian prisoners, including high-profile militants. Hamas released over 100 of more than 240 hostages captured on October 7th in exchange for the release of scores of Palestinian prisoners during a brief ceasefire in November. Nearly all freed on both sides were women and children. Israel has rescued one hostage. The Israeli military said Sunday it discovered a large tunnel in Gaza close to what was once a busy crossing into Israel, raising new questions about how Israeli surveillance missed such conspicuous attack preparations by Hamas. Also on Sunday, 5 people were killed and many injured after a reported Israeli airstrike hit near a United Nations run school in the southern Gaza city of Khan Younis, where displaced Palestinians were sheltering. A cameraman with the Associated Press counted 5 bodies delivered to a hospital. The plight of Palestinian civilians has gotten little attention inside Israel, where many are still deeply traumatized by the by the October 7th attack and war support for the war remains strong. Israel's military says 121 of its soldiers have been killed in the Gaza offensive. It says it has killed thousands of militants without providing evidence. The next article, some Russians who oppose war now fight for Ukraine. This is also out of the Associated Press in Kiev, Ukraine. When Russia's invasion of Ukraine ignited into war... Back in Moscow, a young Russian who now goes by the name of Karabas was plunged into despair. Shocked by images of what was happening to Ukrainians in Russia-occupied areas, he decided to act against Russia, his home, and country. Karabas said he knew that what he was doing was drastic. He packed his bags and decided to find a way to get to Ukraine to join the ranks of Kiev's troops fighting Russian forces. It took him almost a year to make it happen. Today, he is part of the Siberian Battalion, a unit made up of Russians who have joined Ukrainian military ranks to fight against their homeland, hoping someday to help oust Russian President Vladimir Putin. Its members hail mostly from ethnic minorities from Russia's Far East. I was disillusioned with my own people, recounted Karabas, who, like other fighters in the battalion, spoke to the Associated Press on condition that only his military call sign be used. That is why I wanted to come here and fight for a free Ukraine, he added. When Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24, 2022, Karabas said he was dismayed by how most Russians he knew either blindly supported Putin or were indifferent to the war. Sometimes, Karabas said, his grief felt so overwhelming he would break down and cry. Unlike other volunteer units in Ukraine that have Russian nationals, such as the Freedom of Russia Legion and the Russian Volunteer Corps, the Siberian Battalion is officially part of the regular Ukrainian army. Its fighters undergo lengthy security checks, which sometimes take up to a year before they are trained and deployed to the front lines in eastern Ukraine, which has seen some of the most ferocious fighting of the war, and where Ukrainian and Russian forces are locked in a grinding battle for control. Karabas went to Armenia first. There, he sought out Ukrainian friends and learned the language, which he now speaks fluently, refusing to utter a word in his native Russian. On Wednesday at a training exercise outside Ukraine's capital of Kiev, over a dozen Russians from the battalion fired their machine guns during a firing practice, sprinkling cartridges all over the snow, blanketing the ground. Fighters in the battalion from eastern Siberia hope a Ukrainian victory will bring them one step closer to dismantling Moscow's political control over the region, among the poorest in Russia. Those from the area's Yakut and Baryat ethnic communities complain of racism and oppression in Russia, which has driven some activists' calls for independence. Another Russian fighter, who goes by the call sign holod, Openly says he wants Putin's administration removed from power. When this happens, we can talk about victory, he said. Russia will at least cease to be a force of sudden aggression. Russians like Karabas left their entire lives, including families and friends, behind. They first had to escape to a third country before they could travel on to Ukraine, but they say they had no other choice. Integration into the Ukrainian forces was a lengthy process, they said. Their documents were scrutinized, and if they passed this step, they were questioned at length upon arrival in Ukraine. The battalion, which numbers a few dozen, was created six months ago. Ukrainian military leaders are hopeful more will come to join its ranks, and based on applications that have come in so far, they are aiming to have a 300-man strong battalion of Russian fighters. Some from the battalion have already been deployed near Avedka, a Ukrainian-controlled city in the Donsk region, which Putin's forces have long tried to overrun. Karabas says there must be tens, hundreds of thousands of other Russians like him willing to fight with Ukraine. I think we should have a lot more Russian fighters, he said. You are listening to The Daily non on Iris the Iowa's radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. We have an article here in the Nation and World section. From Congress, border talks grind on. Deal is key to more aid for Ukraine and other U.S. security needs. This is out of the Associated Press in Washington. Time slipping. White House and Senate negotiators struggled Sunday to reach a U.S. border security deal that would unlock President Joe Biden's request for billions of dollars worth of military aid for Ukraine and other national security needs before senators leave town for the holiday recess. The Biden administration, which is becoming more deeply involved in the talks, is facing pressure from all sides over a deal. Negotiators insist they are making progress, but a hoped-for framework did not emerge. Republican leaders signaled that without bill text, an upcoming procedure, procedural would likely fail. The talks come as Donald Trump, the Republican presidential frontrunner in 2024, delivered alarming anti-immigrant remarks about blood purity over the weekend echoing Nazi slogans of World War II at a political rally. They're poisoning the blood of our country, Trump said, about the record numbers of immigrants coming to the U.S. without immediate legal status. Throughout the weekend, senators and top Biden officials, including Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, worked intently behind closed doors at the Capitol to strike a border deal, which Republicans in Congress are demanding in exchange for any help for Ukraine, Israel, and other national security needs. Mayorkas arrived for more talks late Sunday afternoon. Every day we get closer, not farther away, said Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut, as talks racked, wrapped up in the evening. Their holiday recess postponed. Murphy and Senator Kristen Cinema, the Arizona Independent, acknowledged the difficulty of drafting and securing support for deeply complicated legislation on an issue that has vexed Congress for years. Ahead of more talks Monday, it is becoming apparent any action is unlikely before year's end. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina said Senators don't want to be jammed by a last-minute compromise reached by negotiators. We're not anywhere close to a deal. Graham, whose staff has joined the talks, said Sunday on NBC's Meet the Press. Graham predicted the deliberations will go into next year. He was among 15 Republican senators who wrote to GOP leadership, urging them to wait until the House returns January 8th to discuss the issue. Top GOP negotiator Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma and Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell also signaled in their own letter Sunday that talks still had a ways to go. The Biden administration faces an increasingly difficult political situation— as global migration is on a historic rise and many migrants are fleeing persecution or leaving war-torn countries for the United States. The president is being criticized daily by Republicans, led by Trump, as border crossings have risen to levels that make even some in Biden's own Democratic Party concerned. Okay, we have some short little briefs here. North Korea fires missile into sea, South Korea says, out of Seoul, South Korea, North Korea on Sunday fired a short-range ballistic missile into the sea, South Korea said, in a possible display of defiance against the latest steps by Washington and Seoul to tighten their nuclear deterrence plans against North Korean threats. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff said the missile was fired from an area near the North Korean capital of Pyongyang at around 10.38 p.m. and flew 354 miles before landing in the sea. The South Korea military said it was sharing the launch information with the United States and Japan to further analyze the details while maintaining readiness against the possibility of additional North Korean military activities. Japan ASEAN leaders adopt security statement out of Tokyo. Leaders from Japan and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations at a special summit in Tokyo on Sunday adopted a joint vision that emphasizes security and economic cooperation while respecting the rule of law amid growing tensions with China in regional seas. Ties between Japan and the 10-member ASEAN bloc used to be largely based on Japanese assistance to the developing economies, in part due to lingering bitterness over Japan's wartime actions. But in recent years, the relationship has focused more on security amid China's growing assertiveness in the South China Sea while Japan's post-war pacifist stance and trust-building efforts have fostered friendlier relations. Severe weather. A storm dumped up to five inches of rain Sunday across Florida, flooding streets and forcing the cancellation of boat parades and other holiday celebrations before moving up the East Coast and causing coastal flooding in South Carolina. Church Destroyed. A Los Angeles-area church was destroyed in a massive fire early Sunday, just hours before a celebration that was set to include a Christmas play and a toy giveaway. No injuries were reported. In Serbia, Serbia's governing populist claimed a sweeping victory Sunday in the country's parliamentary election, which was marred by reports of major irregularities both during a tense campaign and on voting day. The Serbian Progressive Party's projections showed that the governing party won 47 percent of the vote. In Minnesota, police in Marshall, Minnesota, say an officer shot and killed a man early Sunday after spotting him stabbing a woman. Police said the officer used a taser on the man after seeing a woman being stabbed. Ultimately, shots were fired and the suspect died at the scene. The woman is in critical condition. In Texas, police in Texas are trying to determine who injured three bystanders as officers shot and killed a man who pointed a firearm at them late Saturday at a bar in an Austin Entertainment District. Interim Austin Police Chief Robin Henderson said they were still trying to determine who shot the bystanders. The suspect was not yet identified. In a Chile election, Chilean voters on Sunday rejected a proposed conservative constitution to replace the country's dictatorship-era charter. With 96% of votes counted, about 55.8% voted no to the new charter, with about 44.2% in favor. Okay, I think I'll turn to the sports section. We have a story here. Uh, high school basketball, <clears throat> boys' basketball, Lewis Central's overtime win highlights Mac Border Battle Shootout Day 3. This is by Peter Burnett. The 18th annual Mac Border Battle Shootout concluded Saturday. Lewis Central boys earning an overtime win over Gretna East in the best game of the day. We just have a lot of guys that believe in each other, and they know certain nights, certain guys. Maybe it's not your night and we're pretty deep where we have a lot of guys that come in and contribute. Titans head coach Ricky Torres said, You know, what I'm overall proud of is just how relentless they were on the defensive end. We fixed some things up, and I think in the second half was a lot better. The early stages of the game were competitive, the lead swinging back and forth a few times. But the Griffins had a string of four straight threes to turn a two-point deficit into a ten-point lead when the Titans called timeout with six minutes, 11 seconds left in the second quarter. The Titans, however, stayed in striking range after the timeout, and while the Griffins often had an answer, trailed by just six at halftime. Jackson Larson led the Titans with 12 points off the bench, while Talon Hovey had 16 for the Griffins. And after the break, LC hit back even harder, outscoring Gretna East by 10 in the quarter as Larson drained a pair of threes and Nash Paulson added seven in the quarter. Normally, we depend on our defense, and it wasn't there in the first half, Larson said. He really got into us, and in the second half, we really stepped it up on the defensive end. Flares and back screens hurt the Titans in the first half, but better communication fixed the issues. We just weren't talking defensively, Larson said. You know, we weren't physical in getting through. And then second half, he told us we need to talk, get more physical, so we started switching and got it done. We just went back to the basics of our fundamentals of defense and not so much switching, but just fighting through screens and being very physical, Torres added. Going into the fourth, the Titans led 52-48 and never trailed the rest of the way, though there were two ties and plenty of drama, albeit little scoring. Connor Levinson drilled a three to cut the Titans' lead to one, but a Camden cross free throw made it 53-51. Each time LC went up by two, on a pair of Nash-Paulson free throws and a two by Curtis Whitty, Gretna East responded with two more to tie. That brought the game to 57-all with under a minute to play. Both teams had chances to win but couldn't get close shots to fall, and after a witty runner missed, the game went to overtime. Ultimately, a cross free throw and two more by Parker Stressman were enough as missed chances went by for the Griffins and L.C. head-on held on for a sixty to fifty seven win in the always fun border battle. It's always fun, state versus state, and they're a good young ball club, and they're gonna be really, really solid, and I'm glad we're playing now, let's just say that. But it brings out people in the community and a lot of people take pride in it. Larson's eighteen off the bench, second to Nash Paulson's nineteen, were a spark for the Titans. Sometimes I got to do it. Sometimes the starters got it. But today I needed to bring a little spark off the bench, coach said. So I got it done. And thankfully we won and it was a team win, Larson said. A gym rat, according to Torres, Larson is a player that accepts his role but makes Torres' job more challenging. That's probably one thing that is a true testament to Jack is how he accepted that role, the LC LC head coach said. As I told him, you know, hey... You might be the best sixth man in the league right now, and you gotta own that role. And you know he's making my job tough because now it's all of a sudden it's like decisions have to be made. Lewis Central has a record of four and two, and Gretna East has a record of two and five. The ranked Wolverines opened an early lead. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a whole different story there. That's uh, Nottaway East. Excuse me, Nottoway Valley, 51, and Underwood was 46 in a girls' game. Uh, the ranked Wolverines opened an early lead, but the Eagles came swarming back in the second and third quarters to take a 39-34 lead into the fourth. Nottoway Valley shut down Underwood's offense and got some of their own to flip the five-point deficit into a five-point win. Nottoway Valley's record is 6-1, and, and Underwood's is 4-4. Four and four. Underwood 75, Red Oak, 58. The Eagle boys remained undefeated as a strong first half lifted them to a 17-point lead at the break. Red Oak's record is now 3-4. Underwoods is 8-0. And, and Omaha Central, 59, Abraham Lincoln, 37. That was a girls' game. The undefeated Eagles flew out to a big early lead and never looked back in a dominant win over the Lynx. Omaha Central, Whose record is eight and zero, and Council Bluffs Lincoln, whose record is five and three, Omaha Central seventy four Abraham Lincoln sixty five fresh off their win over rivals Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln fell to the Eagles, who opened up a sixteen point lead at halftime and held on, felt uh, held, held off a strong Links second half. Omaha Central's record is five and one. And Council Bluffs Lincoln's record is 5-1 and one also. Gretna East, 45, Lewis Central, 20 in a girls game. Without leading scorer Brooke Larson, the Titans struggled to get their offense going throughout the afternoon. The first half was seemingly even, but each time the Titans were able to finally break down the stingy Griffins' defense for a basket, the Griffins would then answer with two or three more to boost their advantage. A 9 to nothing Gretna East run to close the half, put the Nebraska team ahead by five, heading into halftime. The Griffins continued to build their lead, stretching it to a dozen on a three by Addie LaRock that forced a timeout by Chris Hannafin, with two minutes, 26 seconds left in the third to try to stop the bleeding. But the wound was open, and Gretna East continued to apply pressure, pushing the lead to as many as 16 before the Titans responded with a layup by leading scorer Lucy Scott. A trio of third quarter threes from Terran French ultimately put the Titans in a position they couldn't fight back from, down 19 heading into the fourth. Lewis Central's record is five and three, and Gretna East's record is five-two. Glenwood 41, Plattsmouth 26. That's the girls. A 16-3 run by the Rams put them ahead, 16-9 at the end of the first quarter, and they never looked back. After an explosive first quarter and some of the second, though, in which the teams combined to make seven threes in the quarter, eight and a half, the offenses went stagnant in the third. Glenwood and Plattsmouth combined for just 10 points as the Blue Devils cut the deficit down to 28-23. The Rams pulled away late, winning the fourth quarter 13-3. It was a bit sloppy tonight, but I thought we made it difficult for them on the offensive side, head coach Brian Rasmussen said. They had some easy looks, some open looks early in the game, and we kind of cleaned that up, and they didn't really get any wide open looks in that second half. I think our defense is really what helped us take care in the game. In the game, it seemed to be kind of our best offense. On offense, it wasn't always pretty, but Nayla Nanfido put in one of the best games. Nayla Nanfido was the player of the game in my book, Rasmussen said, We had a lot of kids that contributed and were really good tonight, but I thought Nayla on both ends of the floor was really good. We expect that from her. We get that from her on a nightly basis on the defensive side. But for her to play that way and be that aggressive on the offensive side, bringing some of that defensive energy she has on the offensive side, I'm excited for the rest of the season. That's going to make us a lot better ball club. Defensively, Lauren Hughes continually got in passing lanes and got a couple of blocks. She's really long for her size, not super tall, but she has just a lot of length and kind of long arms, Rasmussen said. And we don't necessarily try to go out and get blocks, but I think she had a few blocks tonight and got her hand on quite a few passes. Glenwood's record is 3 and 3 and Plattsmouth's record is 2 and 4. And finally, we had Plattsmouth 50, Glenwood 48. The Blue Devils got the first points of the game and nearly went The remainder of the first quarter without scoring as the Rams cruised out to a 9-2 lead. But a quick five points made it a two-point game heading into the second. The run would reach 11-0 before the Rams would score again. Down 15-11, Gledwood answered with a 12-2 run before a Blue Devils basket to go into halftime, up four. In the third quarter, the Blue Devils caught fire, scoring 24 to storm out to a nine-point lead that whittled down quickly to four. But a Gage Olson 3 beat the buzzer to put Plattsmouth up 41-34, heading into the fourth. They hit some big shots, and we just couldn't get the lid off the basket, Glenwood head coach Kurt Schulte said. The Rams hung with the Blue Devils, trailing by just five with a minute and two seconds to play when Caden Anderson went to the line. The senior guard hit both free throws, and the Blue Devils split a pair. Adam Severn then went to the line with 54 seconds left, splitting his. But Anderson went back to the line twice over the final 35 seconds of the game, knocking down all four to tie the game with 4.9 seconds left. With the ball, like at the end of the third, Gage called game. Olsen took the inbound pass from the logo, drove left-handed into the lane and scooped a layup with a silky touch off the glass and in. I had confidence in myself. It's a big thing for a player. And Coach Connor Dukes, he drew up a pretty good play. And as soon as I got the ball, I saw Lane and took it, and luckily made the shot, Olsen said. The Blue Devils emerged with their first win of the season. Their record is 1-6, and six, while the Rams fall to 4-3. and three. Well, I'm proud of our kids, Shelty said. I thought the fourth quarter we did some really good things. We had a lot of energy. For the game, we shot 24 free throws. We were 19-24. for 24. We only gave up, I believe, nine points in the fourth quarter. So we did a lot of good things in the fourth quarter. That third quarter just really killed us. It's only December, and we just want to keep going in the right direction and keep plugging away. And we just got to learn from this game. There we have more of a holiday story here. Um, local volunteers spent Saturday buying gifts to brighten spirits for children. It's articles by Tim Rohrer. A group of volunteers spent Saturday buying gifts at a local Walmart to help brighten Christmas for children who might otherwise not receive a gift. This is an opportunity to add a little sunshine to these kids, said Bismson Jeff Ballinger. Christmas is a wonderful time when we want to make sure there is something under the tree for them. Through phone calling and word of mouth, nearly $15,000 was raised, enough to buy gifts for 150 children, Ballinger said. The Lakin Foundation and anonymous donors provided the funds, he said. Local volunteers wrapped the presents for the kids, who were recommended by folks in the community, he said. A lot of needy kids assume they won't get presents under the tree, he said. The volunteers took home the gifts for wrapping to surprise the children this week, Ballinger said. The effort began about three years ago when Ballinger got together with Teresa McBride, Lisa Dunning, and Mike Alford to ensure holiday fundraising events in the community continued. They contacted people they knew, who in turn contacted others, and so forth. We would like this to become an annual event, Ballinger said. We will be working for a higher amount next year. Okay, I'm going to read um, another article here from the Associated Press. In today's paper, Wonka Waltzes to $39 Million Opening out of New York. Wonka debuted with $39 million in box office sales in the U.S. and Canadian theaters over the weekend, according to Studio Estimates Sunday. That made it a strong start for the Timothy Chalamet starring Willy Wonka musical that underscored the young star's draw. Musicals have been tough sales in theaters in recent years, so much so that Warner Brothers downplayed the song and dance elements of Wonka in trailers. Instead, the studio emphasized Chalamet, the 27-year-old actor, who, with Wonka, notched his second number 1 movie following 2021's Dune. The earlier film recorded a $41 million opening. While Dune was a sprawling and star-studded sci-fi adventure, Wonka relies chiefly on Chalamet's charisma. Wonka, which cost about $125 million to produce and played at 4,203 locations, was also the first big Hollywood release to launch following the end of the SAG-AFTRA actors' strike. Chalamet hosted Saturday Night Live just days after the strike ended. In his opening monologue, he sang to the tune of Pure Imagination about returning to this magical world where actors can promote their projects. Wonka, directed by Paul King of Paddington, and Paddington 2 is a prequel to 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, with Charlemagne starring as a young Wonka trying to open a candy store. Its ensemble cast includes Hugh Grant, Olivia Colman, and Keegan-Michael Key. Warner Brothers last revived Roald Dahl's classic, with the 2005 Tim Burton-directed Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, starring Johnny Depp. It debuted with $56.2 million and ultimately grossed $475 million worldwide. To reach those numbers, Wonka will need strong legs through the lucrative holiday movie-going period. On its side are mostly good reviews, 84% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and positive audience reaction, an A- on CinemaScore. Chalamet is also drawing younger ticket buyers, Moviegoers under the age of 25 accounted for 36% of the audience, which was split evenly between 51% females and 49% males. Wonka added $53.6 million in overseas ticket sales. For Warner Brothers, it's the first in a trio of high-profile holiday releases to be followed by Aquaman and The Lost Kingdom on December 22nd and another musical, The Color Purple, on December 25th. The only other new wide release in theaters was Christmas with the Chosen, Holy Night, from Christian-themed distributor Angel Studios. It debuted with $2.9 million in sales through 2,094 theaters. The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, again ranked second this week, with $5.8 million in its fifth week of release, the Lionsgate Hunger Games prequel now up to $145.2 million domestically and more than $300 million globally, has held strong week after week. Last week's top film, Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron, dipped a third with $5.1 million in its second week of release. The latest film from the 82-year-old Japanese anime master has already set records for Miyazaki Studio Gilab. Ghibli and its North American distributor G-Kids. With Holdovers making up most of the top ten movies in the theaters, the weekend's other most notable business was a group of award contenders trying to make their mark following Monday's Golden Globes nominations. Yorgos Lanthimos' Poor Things, a surreal Frankenstein-esque fairy tale starring Emma Stone, expanded into 82 theaters and grossed $1.3 million for searchlight pictures. The film, which will expand further in the coming weeks, is nominated for seven Golden Globes, including Best Comedy or Musical. Cord Jefferson's American Fiction, starring Jeffrey Wright as a sardonic novelist, debuted in seven theaters in three cities with a $32,411 per screen average. MGM's American Fiction, nominated for two Globes, will expand to 40 theaters next week, It won the Audience Award at the Toronto International Film Festival in September. Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest, a chilling Holocaust drama about a Nazi commandant and his family living next to Auschwitz, opened in four theaters with a $31,198 per screen average. Nominated for three Globes, it will play in limited release before expanding in January. And I guess I'll end with today's Council Bluffs weather forecast. Today should be sunny, high around 35. Winds north out of the northwest at 10 to 15 miles an hour. Tonight, there'll be some clouds, low of 23. Winds out of the south-southeast at 10 to 20 miles per hour. Tomorrow, there will be considerable clouds early, some decreasing clouds later in the day, a high of 48. Wind south at 15 to 25 miles per hour. Higher wind gusts are possible. So that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Daily Nonpareil. I've been your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.